Hey everyone, this is Savannah with the Black Codes, and I'm sitting with my very good friend, Donald Robinson. Yo, what's going on, good people? And we have another episode for you this week. Again, Donald will be taking the reins on the information, and I'm just gonna, I don't know, sit back and try to have some jokes, probably say fuck you a lot again to some of these people. <laughs> and there's plenty of people worthy of it. Yeah, the the list never ends, you know, like reading through i mean reading kind of through anything there's always someone that you're like yo you were really fucking wild and like how did no one check you how how was this able to happen people be supporting it though they do and that's how they're able to like get this shit off for so long because there are people still supporting them trump just this week released his platinum plan for black americans and the coons came out like, oh. Oh, your boy. <laughs> that is not my boy. <laughs> <laughs> your boy was like, I was like, commented on, um, I'm not going to put her name on there, but mm-hmm. I, I commented on her post and I was like, weak. And he was like, well, it was more than all the other politicians were doing for us. And I was like, come on, bro. He just like released this this week, days before an election, after he's not done anything, trying to be specifically for This is people. like the same thing as fucking Hillary Clinton pulling out hot sauce out of her bag. Like... This definitely, has an ex- this definitely has an ex- exponent next to it, though, because mm-hmm. it's law, not just hot sauce. Yeah, but we'll see if that shit actually comes into play. Now you know. Hopefully, he's not going to be here, so we don't have to see shit Yeah, from him. I don't want to know. Yeah, <laughs> for real. I was telling Savannah just literally before we started this about my middle school rap career. <laughs> I got a little sneak peek of his current rap career. Not great. Not seeing a future in that. There will not be a mixtape coming out. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Um, yeah, but me, oh, his name was Mark Daly. Mm-hmm. This is a friend of mine from like sixth, seventh grade. And this is when I first started getting into weightlifting because uh, we were getting ready for eighth grade football. And so they let us lift weights. And I had just did cross country, wrestled. And then it was right before track started. And then it was the summer after track from seventh grade. And so, you know, he was like my lifting friend. Like, we fell in love with it. Like, we were, like, chasing the dragon hard. And, like, especially me at seventh grade, I was undersized. Mm -hmm. I was, like, I think I was actually not that small in, like, fifth grade and Mm -hmm. sixth grade. But I just stopped growing. So you, like, peaked early? I think. Like, (laughs) I was never tall. But I also did not. I did not stand out as short until about eighth grade. Word. But... Uh, you know, heavy in the lifting. I actually gained like almost 15 pounds. I was 92 pounds at close to the same height. Damn. Like I wasn't that much shorter. I was 92 pounds. By the end of that um, school year, I had got up to 109. And then as I got through eighth and ninth grade, I ballooned up to like 120. And then I stayed up to like 120 something until college when I shot up to 140s but that was because of food and then it took me the next two years to get back to one (laughs) like the same posture i am now but Uh muscle right but um yeah we would like in eighth grade do little raps in the back of the classroom like we would freestyle it was horrendous (laughs) i would write stuff down it was just a little bit less horrendous (laughs) so so like if someone is completely off the top freestyling it's still like that clearly this isn't your calling. Don't do that. But if you had time to write shit down and it was still super bad, then that's definitely not your calling. Definitely not the calling. And it makes me, 
it's one of those things when you look at people who are really talented at like gymnastics or they're really talented at music or they're really talented at, you know, pretty much any particular thing that the average person can be good at or is not. Mm-hmm. People who can freestyle, that shit's amazing. Yeah. People have a hard enough time getting their thoughts out in regular words <laughs> sure. just to speak to you. <laughs> For sure. And so thinking about not even just what you're saying, like the, the line that's going to come after and like punchlines and rhyming and staying on beat and a cadence and then wanting to like switch it up. Like that takes a lot of uh, a lot of brain work that some people don't have access to that part of their brain. So it's definitely a talent. That's so impressive. Like they're trying to make a point, especially people who like yeah. are freestyling about something and not just trying to make rhymes. Yeah. But like they can rhythmically make a point. How does your brain work like that? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole industry for like uh rap like freestyle rap battles. Like that's a whole thing where oh, yeah. like that's a, people's career. It's definitely cool. Um, <laughs> it's I always think it's funny the way that freestyles are kind of delivered, especially in battles. Like there's, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen like a rap battle. A lot. They're they're just funny. Um, but shout out to y'all because I couldn't. Mm-mm, I couldn't. This is about the extent that I can do audio presentations. <laughs> podcasting i have notes in front of me right and still get lost now this whole point was a freestyle but there was no rhythm needed for this right so this week donald we are kind of expanding out just kind of looking at the police and who they are and what they do and you brought some really interesting things to the table i think when we think about um, the, the power that police have, we don't understand where it comes from, who gives them it, what, what are these powers, what do they actually look like in terms of laws, who's rolling them out, and why, and how are they coming about. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, you're taking the rein on this because I had to have a little, you know, just mental break in regards to the police, and you are killing it. Um, so, no pun, yeah. right? Huh? No pun there, right? No, I'm not being smart this time. That was a genuine compliment. <laughs> uh, yeah, so tell me some more about the police. I'm dying to know. So over the last um, couple generations, there has been an increased militarization of police, mm-hmm. as well as statutes that help protect police. Some of these things are arguably justified um, And some of them are, like, things that may have gotten out of hand. When we look at justice in our society, there's one thing that I think we need to know that people do not know. And that justice, the way the law of the United States sees it, and justice, the way that you see it, are not one and the same. Yeah. There's a really good book that I read called uh, The World Until Yesterday. And it was about this researcher who studies uh, ancient societies, but like the old societies that are more like hunter-gatherer or mm-hmm. tribe So he spends a lot of time in the Amazon, in the Congo, in like Papua New Guinea, and studying those peoples. He was actually one of the first Europeans to like actually talk to those kind of people in Papua New Guinea in the 1930s when Europeans quote-unquote discovered it. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's one point that he makes very clearly that when you look at law here, it stands out and that we miss. Justice 
in the Western world, especially in the Western developed world, is about having justice against the law being broken. If you break the law, you are brought against the state about that. Mm -hmm. When you break the law in these older societies, justice is about restoration of the offended party. But here, our law is not about that. If I offend you, Savannah, if I break all your dishes and steal your books and steal your art from your house, and you seek justice against me, what you want is to be made back in full from what I took from you. Right. You want either the actual property back or you want financial compensation for that. Mm -hmm. The United States wants justice because I stole. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give a damn about you, your artwork, whatever I took from you. It cares about, oh, Donald, you broke the law because you're a thief and you robbed, and so now we need to punish you for breaking the law. And that's a very stark difference in the motivation of how the law works and gets played out. Yeah, it really sets it up for how you then police people, how you punish people. Um, Because if you're only really going after, if the law is what actually needs to be protected, not the people, that really opens the door for people to be used and abused through loopholes of the law, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's where we're at today. (laughs) And so as we look at two particular things when it comes to policing right now and some of the statutes that go around them, we're looking at militarization and then protection. Militarization of police, if you listen to our other episode about this, when you look at J. Edgar Hoover coming into power. Fuck you. There we go. That's number one. (laughs) When you look at him coming into um, power within the police in the 1920s, there's an increase in militarization because he's all about crime fighting. Mm -hmm. I like to think about like these old superheroes in a sense. Not like that he was a superhero, but like this aspect of offensive crime fighting and, you know, Batman going out and trying to find the criminals. Like that seemed like that would be totally his jam. Mm -hmm. And so coming from August Vollmer, who was very into the social at work and humanitarian end of policing and J. Edgar Hoover influencing now creating, um, police officers who can handle these big bad criminals who can handle manhunts and shootouts there is this increased tick of being able to now have them more formally trained and there's you know military-esque style of uh, command and, and discipline that gets you know brought into policing and so as you progress along through you know the latter part of the 20th century you have uh, a few big things that happen first of all you have the war on drugs yeah. The war on drugs created a very large uptick in the militarization of the police because part of the law now was that these officers could go and do counterterrorism work, which mm-hmm. kind of goes into a little later, but counter drug operations. Yeah, I mean, it's literally called the war on drugs. And so when you psychologically look at What happens militarily with police? So on one hand, there's policies that allow them to have military-grade equipment, which we'll talk about in a second. But there's also how you speak to people that changes their psyche. If you now have the war on drugs, Mm -hmm. your cops feel like they're at war. For real. When they go into your neighborhood, if you live in a poor neighborhood, they feel like they're an occupying force 
to take control of the drug issue, but now they have to come and take control of everybody. And so that starts to psychologically mold and shape who these officers identify themselves as and what kind of people want to go ahead and be police officers mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah. And so when you look at um, some of the things that came out of that, you have stop and frisk, which is literally you know a law that allows these officers to stop and check people at random. Yeah. You get no knock warrants, which like what happened to Breonna Taylor and all, you know drug raids uh, and these very offensive stings that are attacking people about this. Yeah, and it it just really opens the door for the police if if they think drugs are present, they can kind of do what they want, you know, like the stop and frisk thing. People, a group of people are just walking down the street, and they're in a car. Oh, look at these niggas in I don't know jeans that are baggy and Tims and. They have a jersey on. They, like, fit a profile. They probably have drugs on them. We're going to stop all of them. And we're not just going to stop them and even ask them, like, hey, what are you guys doing? We're going to do it aggressively. We're going to do it forcefully. We're going to almost, like, emasculate, you know, these men on the street. And, like, we talked about this before, doing, like, assaulting their partners, like, assaulting women right in front of them. The men can't do anything. Like, it just opens the door for police to think that they have complete dominion over everything and everyone and the neighborhood that they are supposed to be protecting and serving. They're, that's like, the protect and serve is now on the back burner Mm. because they're in a war. And this is the same, this is the, you know, next generation of police yeah. that were just out there, or even the same generation of police that were down there putting down labor strikes, putting down civil rights activists in the 50s and 60s, violently putting down, and now here they are having the opportunity to offensively take mm-hmm. on things. There's a couple other um, upticks in militarization of the police, in things that are a little bit more easier to justify depending on how you feel about them. And that was Columbine in 1999 and then 9-11. And so with Columbine, you saw this you know, presence of officers at schools and a new training for these officers to be able to respond to these things faster because when Columbine happened, there was a very long lag between the shooter starting and then the police actually Getting arriving. There. Yeah. And so when you look at the you know, changes that come with that, now there's you know, different changes with having police officers at the schools or in the vicinity of the school to be able to respond to these things faster. And then you get 9-11, mm-hmm. which now counterterrorism becomes a very big thing in the new millennia for the United States. And so now cops are you know, giving granted even more access to do things in the essence of counterterrorism and doing joint programs with the Department of Defense in which there was a Posse Comitus Act that was passed, um, I believe it was 1898, that was to separate the police from law enforcement, but between... The police from the military. Police from the military, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And so when you look at, over the course of those hundred years, this degrading of that law and this blend of the police and military action. Mm -hmm. And so there is a very particular thing in 2015, Ferguson, Missouri, this is where Mike Brown was killed. The year before. The year before. And so the um, finance director there had made a comment to, I believe it was the mayor or the governor, um, don't quote me on who they said that to, but there was an actual conversation that they had 
and they talked about how if they don't have an increase in like tickets, then there's going to be some funding issues. And so there's all these little interactions that are happening that, you know, things that can lead up to a Mike Brown being killed Mm -hmm. that just change how the police or evolve how the police are interacting with people. And this was five years ago. Yeah. And I think we hear about that often, like police needing to meet quotas and like Mm -hmm. kind of being forced to meet certain quotas on how many people they pull over, how many tickets they write. And we, I mean, how can I put this? The police, like the actual job itself to protect and serve is something where you are putting your life on the line. And I think in a lot of places, they can be underpaid for what they're supposed to be doing, just in terms of, I could die, you know, on the line of duty. And just as like a, a entry level officer, I don't know what the first level of being a police is, a police officer is, but they're not paid that well. And so I think when you add like the stress of like uh, funding cuts and not being paid great for a job that could be really stressful and you're like forced to meet these quotas, it really just allows for a lot of abuse of power to roll in and a lot of aggression and agitation that is that, you know, they kind of meet with civilians and it shouldn't be like that. And when you look at, like, the war on drugs that we're still currently in, this failed war on drugs. Complete fail. There are raids that have happened where the cops did not even really have the right to do it, but they knew they had money there. And so, you know, some drug raids just turn into, like, we're going to just take the drug money and we're going to use that to send my kid to summer camp or go on a vacation with my wife. Yeah. Like, these things are very real. Yeah. I mean... You've seen, like, the shows, and there's plenty of, like, ID specials and just documentaries um, about corrupt police that they're in cahoots with the drug dealers, you know? Like, they're getting drugs, they're selling drugs, they're going in and they're confiscating the drugs and the money, and then they're selling the drugs back on the street and they're keeping the money to do God knows you know, like literally, God knows who, what they were doing with the dollars that they were confiscating. But they probably, all, every single dollar was not making it back to the evidence room. Yeah. And so when you think about over the last hundred years, J. Edgar Hoover's romanticizing of these crime-fighting police and dealing with the gangsters of the 30s. When you think about putting down riots and strikes in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, then you start looking at the war on drug era, and then you look at Columbine and 9-11, it just creates this big uptick mm-hmm. in militarization and, you know, America's assumed need almost for more militant police, although crime dropped drastically in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so there's a program that came about called the 1033 program. And the 1033 program was a program that was created in, um, I do not have the year directly in front of me, But the 1033 program was created so that police departments could have access to excess um, equipment from the military, Mm -hmm. from the Department of Defense. And so these, you know, police departments would apply and they would get equipment and it would be sometimes very minimal things. Desks, computers, laptops, cars, vehicles. Airplanes, (laughs) Airplanes, <laughs> grenade launchers, <laughs> um, 
assault rifles, arms, and a variety of other things. And so, you know, they kind of just slipped that stuff in there. And there are some interesting stats that happen with this program. So, first of all, there are, um, where is this? Um, some studies had shown that some of the departments that received more equipment from the 1033 program killed more people. Not surprising. <laughs> like, literally, the study had shown that the more equipment that these departments were getting from this program, the more, like, citizens they, they actually killed. And it's like, so why? And it plays into sometimes the psychology. Mm-hmm. You have these cool-ass toys. Mm-hmm. You want to play with them. You want to play with them. And then you think about the psychology that goes into these police officers becoming more militant and now having the means to be more militant and already feeling like they're an occupying force in a lot of these neighborhoods. It just further, you know, drives the needle that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't really know what they expected. I mean, I guess the rollout, the intention was it's there if you need it, if some shit pops off, but... Why, like, a regular city police department needs grenade launchers and tanks and assault rifles is honestly beyond me when there's also SWAT teams, there's the National Guard, is there's, like, bases around the country, you know, especially in close proximity to major cities. Mm-hmm. So police forces themselves, like, I don't get it. And if you're opening the door um, and letting people come in to become a police officer and, yeah, they have to undergo, like, a a quote-unquote extensive background check, but we know that the police allow a lot of people that if they're... (sighs) If maybe some different questions were asked, especially part of like the mental aspect, like the mental test, they probably wouldn't be police officers because having power for some people, they just shouldn't, you know, like they should not be ever in a position where they have power, especially over power over someone's life, Mm -hmm. especially access to equipment that could take someone's life without giving it a second thought. And then there's no real... If they do that, if they abuse their power and if they're using these weapons in a way that they shouldn't be, there's no real consequences for them. So it opens the door for for, for more people to say, oh, well, we can just keep doing this then. Mm-hmm. And there are 11,000 police departments that participate, that are um, registered with this program, and 8,000 police departments that actively use equipment from this program. And those are just the ones that use 1033, right? Yeah. Through all 50 states. Mm-hmm. 50 Interesting. states. 8,000 departments. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, That's a lot of military weapons across the country in these police departments. Yeah, seriously. A couple quick things for you. First of all, a couple corrections. So the Posse Comatus Act was of 1878, and the 10... 33 Act was born in 1997. Now, for counter-drug, counter-terrorism work. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the war on drugs, one of the big things that came out of that was SWAT teams, mm-hmm. which was a huge military thing. Like, these were 
regular police officer. Like, this is the same type of police officer that might give you a ticket. That might be standing at your high school basketball game. That could be trained as a SWAT officer. Like, these were regular guys who were, like, the special forces of police, which, again... You know, I'm the SWAT, so I'm like I'm like the Green Beret of the police. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I have a little story actually. In grad school, I went to uh, grad school at the University of Texas uh, at Austin. They had this thing called Cop Day, and where they brought all these police uh, from the Austin Police Department and all their toys and stuff to like show the public what the police are working with. Were they doing it in an attempt to recruit? like college students into the police force or was it just like meet the police you know like meet come meet the the people that are supposed to protect and serve this community i honestly don't know what the intent was like (laughs) i came across it walking through campus and i Uh was like why are there all those police up there and why is there a tank up there yeah and someone's like oh it's cop day like you know oh it's cop day (laughs) and i'm like i think i'm gonna go the other way (laughs) and then i stopped and i was like i'm on a college campus I'm wearing Texas gear. I'm probably not going to... Let me just go you would there. It's a demonstration. So. Yeah. So I walked up there, and I ended up talking to these two SWAT guys. Because, like, you know, the toys look pretty fucking cool. So I was like, oh, look at this tank. Like, So I walked over to the tank, and I'm, you know, chatting with these SWAT guys. And, I mean, this thing was huge. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking them, you know, some questions about how they came into being police officers. And at the time, I had been introduced to the idea of militarization of police, but I didn't really know much about it. They proceeded to tell me that they were both former military people. And, like, these are the first two cops I had ever had a real conversation with in my life. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, we were both in the military. Were they both white? They were both white. And so they were like, yeah, but we, didn't, we wanted the military way of life and access to things, but we did not want to have to be away from our families abroad. And so they were like, well, you know, being SWAT officers allowed us to still have this military feel but I got to go home to my wife and kids every night. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, these are the first two people I spoke to. I wonder how many other people might feel like this. And they actually did tell me that there are a lot of ex-military uh, soldiers who come into the police force because they still want to feel like they're a part of a militant group, but they just want to be with their families. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of you know, looks at who wants to be in the military in the sense of, you know, combat. A lot of people. And the, the personality that comes with that, and then the personality that's like, well, I don't want to actually be in Afghanistan right now. Mm-hmm. I don't actually want to be stationed in this other country. So let me be stationed at home. Yeah. And the thing is, it might not even be about the, like, war itself. It's just, I have a wife and kids, and they're on the other side of the world. Like, I could do this if I was single, but I'm not. I have like a family to take care of and I don't want to put them, you know, through the stress of me being active in this war. So I will continue to do something that I am passionate about or enjoy, but I'm going to do it, um, you know, closer to home mm-hmm. so I can see my family every day. And part of that, like, it's understandable, but then there still needs to be some regulation though around because you're not in the military anymore but what regulation goes into a personality and a Mm. way of life because these are the same people that rise in ranks they set the culture and when you think about culture culture really can't be for lack of a better term policed um it can't but i think that through 
more like psychological or behavioral tests, questionnaires, shit like that, like real, like maybe sit down interviews, you can gather how a person feels about shit, especially if they're working with trained professionals. Mm -hmm. And if you see some inklings of like, yo, this person might not be the best choice to have on the street. Mm -hmm. That should be taken seriously. Yeah. And there are, you know, reports about misconduct and these uh, different aspects that get swept under the rug Mm -hmm. when they do find officers that really should not be, you know, in the communities. And so when you look at the next part of this, the protection of the police, you get actually, you know, laws that deal with this, but also things like the police unions and the fraternal order of police, which I have never really understood why they need a fraternal order of police. Because for listeners, if you are familiar with fraternities at all, they're generally like secret societies. They are groups of people who are sworn in one fashion or another to have each other's back in this sense of brotherhood or sisterhood if it's a sorority. And there's a lot that goes secret and unsaid inside of those. And there's supposed to be some benefit that you get from being in these. And so the police have one. But what happens in this sense that you already have a union, you have a fraternal order, accountability, it's really called into question because while you might know that this guy is a dickhead and Mm -hmm. you might know he's kind of foul, that's also your brother in very, Mm -hmm. in in many levels of that's your brother. And so are you really going to discipline him in a way that actually is meaningful other than you scolding him? Yeah, probably not. And so there was this uh, very interesting thing, the Police Officer Defense Coalition. And when you think about Blue Lives Matter, this is Blue Lives Matter with, like, biceps. (laughs) And so they are uh, a coalition that is really pressed about this aspect of our current society hating police. And the war war on cops. The war on (laughs) cops, y'all. And so they're actually, you know have this boldly on their website. And so you think about leaders in the police force and even in the community who feel like there's a war on cops. And then you think about just aspects of misconduct, gross misconduct, when you think about going into somebody's house and just shooting it up. Um, One in four people uh, killed by police are mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about this militarization and the type of people who are in the military they're not social workers yeah they don't have social work backgrounds and Mm -hmm. yet you know a lot of the people that they're dealing with in the community might have mental illnesses Mm -hmm. and so you know there's that level of protection between the unions and there's actually you know it's actually sometimes hard to hold these unions accountable and to hold this fraternal order accountable so that a lot of things can get swept away yeah, I read something, some, one of the articles that you shared, um, it was from the union and how it's like everyone blames the police union, but we're a union just like any other labor force and police being able, or I should say bad police being able to continue their job isn't because of the union, it's because of the chain of command. Like they don't whoever is in charge of them, the sergeant, lieutenant, whatever, they don't want to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So it's not us. Stop blaming us. But I've worked with people that are in unions, and I know about unions. 
they're great like they were a necessary thing because without them it allows for employers to really abuse their workers but it does also I don't want to say makes it difficult because I support unions but there are cases in how some unions are just kind of laid out where it does make it a bit harder to get rid of people that aren't necessarily doing the job that's being asked but because they're in this union you have to present all this shit in order to maybe reprimand this person or get them fired and so therefore a lot of people don't fuck with unions Mm -hmm. that aren't a part of one um so yeah like i get the police needing in a union the fraternal order is weird because they're public servants Mm -hmm. so obviously there's a culture within the police that only police officers would know or understand but should they have a fraternal order i don't know specifically yeah i i don't know about that yeah that's um then one of those things that's always escaped me maybe we'll do another episode about that one day (laughs) but um there's a two last things here first there's a law in new york city called 50-a and there are similar laws to this in other um states and so this law got started in 1976 which basically was made to um Refuse disclosure of personnel records used to evaluate performance towards continued employment or promotion. And so it basically creates this legal shield that prohibits the disclosure of the misconduct of officers. And so that when the records get pulled, like they don't have to get shared. And so that actually just got um, pulled back and taken out this Mm -hmm. year Mm -hmm. uh, on June the 12th in New York City. And there are some interesting stats about this. So across the United States, misconduct data is unavailable in 23 states about police misconduct. In 27 states, it's just kind of available. So it's pretty much not available at all. (laughs) So like nearly half of the United States you can't pull misconduct records of police officers. And New York is, you know, a bigger state that just repealed that this year, so maybe there's a flow of that, but that's really crazy. Yeah, I it's it's one of those things where if you are working as a public servant, your work background should be accessible to the public. If you have misconduct charges, you're the you're on the street. You're policing and you're supposed to be protecting and serving the community. And if there's misconduct against you because you're abusing that, people should know that. People should know who are actually walking the streets with all this authority and power. And like old boy that had his neck on George Floyd, he had like 18, what, allegations against him? Mm -hmm. How can you possibly be able to keep a job after 18 misconduct allegations, like 18 issues that got brought up? How is that possible? That like that... That is what blows my mind. And similar in Pittsburgh, um, when Antoine Rose II got killed, the officer who did that had been fired from a different department and hired onto that department and had misconduct issues himself. And it's just, you know, this level of protection. Now, there was a reason for that to, you know, not let, it was to not let lawyers and prosecutors just go start fishing for problems and Mm -hmm. start trying to just pull records. 
But it, that got out of hand to where now police can't be held accountable and even looking at what are their records. And mm-hmm. it also, a lot of these things have left room open for the police departments to not really take good records. Um, yeah. There was a very particular thing that I would have to look back into, but um, certain records were not really being taken care of until like this decade. And so some uh, researchers who were even trying to look into certain aspects of police misconduct, um, you know, certain stats and data weren't able to really go back that far about certain things because the data just kind of got erased. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. There was some guy like contacted the FBI to try to get some records and got the runaround, had gotten hung up on, was given like an email address that bounced back. And then when he finally was able to speak to someone, they had just this half-ass, it was... They sent him a um, CD-ROM, and then when he finally like found a laptop that could use, that could read the CD, it was in like an old text file that took him like hours to even like separate and decipher. So there's either yes, really, really, really bad record taking happening. The other thing I saw was they would have like records like things that would happen like within the year and then the next year just right over that yes that's what it was yeah so it's so okay maybe you were keeping records for a year but you didn't save them you didn't open any tab you just wrote right over that so now all this stuff from the past is gone that is a problem yeah (laughs) especially when our records it's like very rare do they get expunged right once you have a record, you have a record and you kind of have to deal with it. And there's also, I think because of the 94 like crime thing that Clinton did, three strikes and you could get sent for life if you like have a felony or whatever, right? If you get mm-hmm. like three felonies, you could potentially serve life in prison. Why is there no regulation or laws in place that do the same thing with police officers when they're breaking the law? I don't, I don't know. And Someone it gets, answer. And it gets worse. So one of the last uh, pieces of protection we're going to talk about is qualified immunity. Hmm, tell me more. It sounds shady. <laughs> it is. So qualified immunity was uh, first actually brought about in um, about 100 years ago, a little over, as a way to protect public officials from constantly being sued um, for every little thing that they did so they can act in confidence. In the 1980s, there were uh, some court precedents created to actually use it more thoroughly with police officers and other first responders to protect them and allow them to do their job better. Mm-hmm. When you think about the war on drugs and you're doing drug raids and you're stopping and frisking people, mm-hmm. you kind of need some level of immunity so that everybody can't sue you. Yeah, and I, I do think the whole like qualified immunity, like in theory, it makes sense because... But that's like I think that's where my frustration my frustration lies because this this comes into a play so first responders can do their job effectively without potentially being um, like abused or like citizens um, saying oh they did X Y and Z I want to sue the state I want to sue I want to sue the city or I want to sue this person that makes sense because it people will try to you know get shit over to try to get a quick dollar mm-hmm. but you're thinking so much about that that you're not even considering or you don't even care mm-hmm. that abuse of that can happen on the other end yeah 
And so you get um, this qualified immunity, which often basically allows um, prosecutions or sues against officers and, and other government officials to just not go to trial. Mm-hmm. And so there are um, some, you know, big problems with that. And so when you look at uh, a very particular case, there was a case called Corbett versus Vickers in which an arrest was being made. And in this arrest, uh, the police officer showed up to the house, mm-hmm. ordered everybody on the ground. So, you know, the actual suspect they were looking for was there. The suspect and then the children and even the suspect's mother were rounded up. And, you know, everyone was on the ground. The officer, uh, Officer Vickers, had seen the dog of the family run around in the yard. Shot at the dog. Missed. Dog ran in the house. Dog came back out towards the owners. The officer shot again. Missed. Hit one of the children in the back of the knee. Ten-year-old child. Hit him in the back of the knee. Originally was denied qualified immunity because of the Fourth Amendment in talking about um, search and seizure and that he stepped out of line. Mm-hmm. He argued back against the court with his lawyers, stating that basically that child was not protected by the Fourth Amendment because the child was basically um, not the subject of the arrest, nor was he the intended target for the officer who made the shot. And so because the officer wasn't trying to shoot the boy for, to seize him and the boy was not the target of the seizure, he was basically a bystander, he did not qualify uh, under the Fourth Amendment protection. So the judge or the jury, they had to take back their dismissal or the denial of qualified immunity and give this officer qualified immunity, which threw the whole thing out. And this is not the only case. That's just the one I chose to talk about. This happens over and over again when officers get into actual fatal situations with citizens and they don't even go to trial because um, there's a couple of things that have to be established. First, there must be established that the defendant violated a constitutional right. So the cop had defended, um, violated a constitutional right. Second, they must show that the violated right was like clearly established. And so those two precedents set this up. But part of this issue with qualified immunity is that there are so few cases of people being denied qualified immunity or cases being slightly different from each other, that there's no prior precedent. Mm -hmm. And in law, prior precedent means a lot in what it's going to get dictated the next time it comes around. So I think it's important. um, This is important to know because, you know, we have situations like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all these cases that come out you know like there's usually a few there's been like a few um over the past probably like 10 years that really make headlines those are just like a drop of water in the bucket like Mm -hmm. situations with the police using force and it being fatal happens times 10 i mean when we talk about like the whole say her name say his name like don't forget these people there is a lot, like there is a list, a list of people that were quote unquote bystanders. They weren't the subject of this. Or if they were, you know, they 
resisted arrest, whatever. Like these situations are happening almost every day across this country. And it's only certain ones that end up becoming this huge thing. But don't let that shit fool you. Like this qualified immunity is in place and it works. And that's why we only hear about certain cases every so often. Yeah, there's a lot of cases that get immediately thrown out because the officer qualified for immunity. So there was almost no point in, you know, it getting played up. Yeah, because nothing was going to happen. Now, maybe this maybe the family could like file a civil suit, but nothing's happening to the officer. And so mm-hmm. then they're able to go back on the street and do that shit again. And there's a certain confidence that gets backed with that because also if there is a lawsuit that gets paid out when you think about the settlement uh, with Louisville and Breonna Taylor's family, it's the state that's paying it out. The officer themselves is not personally liable to that. Like they're not, you know, in debt. They're not paying out their assets to, you know, uh, for justice, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's the state paying out these restitutions. Because like a state, a city state employee wronged you in the line of duty. So it's like, oh, that's our bad. Let me throw you this money. We'll deal with them accordingly, however we feel like dealing with them, though. And it doesn't mean that they're going to lose their job. But mm-hmm. we'll throw y'all some money. Like, my sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, actually, not sorry. Not sorry. Just, Just here's ship, money. should be happy. Shut you got to chalk up. it up to the game. I mean, here's a little, here's a few dollars. Shit happens. <laughs> it's definitely more of a shit happens. <laughs> and so, um, actually, this year, when people talk about 2020 being this shitty year, and in many ways, yes. But in other ways, 2020 has been actually revolutionary year and mm-hmm. game-changing. Um, maybe not revolutionary, but definitely I think we'll look back on this year like, yo, so much shit was going on at the same time. What a crazy fucking year. Mm-hmm. What a crazy time. And one of those things that's emerging out of that is the uh, JPA Act 2020. And so what it is, it's the... Um, Justice and of police, Justice and Policing Act of 2020. That is a bill that is getting pushed through currently, and what it does is it actually has a lot of different police reform aspects to it in regards to um, being able to hold officers more accountable, uh, ending no knock warrants. Um, you know, looking at actually different aspects of community involvement with policing and other aspects there's a lot to the bill and as i've discovered in reading this um that's why lawyers get paid a lot of money because (laughs) reading these bills and reading these court cases is like it's probably as hard or harder than some of the hardest research papers i had to do in grad school yeah and to be fair a lot of bills and laws and even like when you think about contracts like a lot of legal documents aren't written in regular English they're written in like law Mm -hmm. you know so for the average reader if you don't have a background and kind of understanding what all that shit means you'll you'll sit there for ages like rereading the same sentence like I don't know what this I don't know what you are saying what does this mean yeah um shout out to uh rep Karen Bass who's the sponsor of this bill I actually got to meet her in 2011 is she a Pennsylvania representative No, California. California, okay. Um, I got to meet her. I used to do this program called Foster Club, Mm -hmm. and now I'm 28. I'm 20 something, (laughs) (laughs) and um, 
I am no longer a youth under the foster care programs kind of things. And so what I did was I went to D.C. and did like a little testimony about just experience and whatever. But I got to meet her. She was on the Congressional Caucus for Foster Care. And she's the sponsor of the bill. I just realized that. So there is a lot to this, but it looks at actual qualified immunity reform. And um, one of the amendments is to help... Um, Basically, it shall not be a defense or immunity in any action brought under this section against local law enforcement officer, such as something in regards to George Floyd, um, that the defendant, basically they're taking out the good faith part of it, the defendant was acting in good faith, or that the defendant believed, reasonably or otherwise, that his or her conduct was lawful at the time when the conduct was committed. Um, and then there's also a second part of this, the rights, privileges, or immunity secured by the Constitution and laws were not clearly established at the time of their deprivation by the defendant and or that such other time the state of the law was otherwise such that the defendant could not reasonably have been expected to know whether his or her conduct was lawful. That was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> but basically they're adding this in there and what it looks like is taking out um, this potential um, for good faith Mm -hmm. about things that resulted really foul. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not interpreting that great, but this is one of those aspects that if you just take that quote, transcribe it, and send it to a lawyer, they can give you a better answer. But it is a reform piece as a part of this bill that's being proposed. Um, there's a proposal for a national task force on law enforcement oversight, federal data collection on law enforcement practices, these are things that are getting pushed in 2020. Yeah. Um, you know, independent investigations from outsiders. And so the bill, if you're interested, is HR 7120. Uh, and it is um, going to Senate currently right now. Um, it's actually in full called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020. Hmm. Yeah, I think that there's been several responses by lawmakers because like I think the people we're just we're kind of at a point I know I said this on an earlier episode like we're living in a uh, another civil rights movement and I think that for lawmakers and politicians some people are going to die on their hill. Some people don't want to listen to what other people have to say. Other people have the wherewithal to realize if we don't do something, this shit's going to get worse. We can't keep allowing this to happen. We do need to have some oversight. Like, th like those things that you mentioned should have been put into place ages ago. Hoover, what the fuck were you doing for 50 years in the FBI? Like, you were just fucking wreaking havoc. You didn't think about maybe, like, starting a database collection to make sure that these agents you have running the fuck around um, can be accountable if they do some wild shit. And that will then trickle down to law enforcement, right? They will take heed to the FBI if they, like, set a precedent, right? No, that's not what you did. You were just, like, intimidating all of the presidents and kind of saying, oh, this is my shit. I'm going to do what I want. Fuck you. <laughs> I have real beef with him. <laughs> Yo, like, she really does. That's how I feel about um, King Leopold II. Now fuck him, too. <laughs> if you guys don't know, you should first of all Google that, but we're on the high horse, so I'm going to just kind of bring it in. Yes. <laughs> so when you think about um, European colonialism, some of you listening might actually not really know what that was. I know I didn't really know what European colonialism was 
until I was 22 years old. Like, it just was not something that I recall being brought up in history class. And I actually cared about social studies class. And so King Leopold II was um, the king of Belgium. And this was like in the late 1800s. And basically, the country, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, he basically went to that area and made the Congo his backyard. And there was a lot of rubber there. And so he became like this... He be, like think about the CEO of Shell and Exxon. Mm-hmm. Like he became that for rubber at the time. Yeah, and I think created some very barbaric practices. Definitely look that shit up. Look yourself. that shit up. Well, we might talk about that at some point, but it's disgusting. Fuck you, Leopold. No, You're fuck no one's you, king. Leopold. That's that's how I feel. I remember I read that I was so disgusted, but. Um, so those were some things for you guys to uh, look more into, hopefully, you know, brought some light to you mm-hmm. um, about militarization and then a lot of these laws that protect uh, police and in, in make holding them accountable rather difficult. Yeah. And so, you know, take some time to look at, you know, different things that Jager Hoover brought in, uh, looking at how the war on drugs militarized the police, police. look at the 1033 Act, um, look at, you know, different as this police officer defense coalition and 50A and similar laws that protect their misconduct stats, as well as looking into qualified immunity, because it is one of those things that's actually a bipartisan thing that people don't like on either sides. Yeah. Republicans, uh, it seems from what I've been reading, have a little bit of beef with qualified immunity because of some of the uh, reach of government in that sense, um, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. Um, yeah, so when you look at these things and people are talking about defund the police and even abolish the police movements or people looking at rethinking public safety, there have been many iterations of policing over the last few hundred years. The yeah. way that it is now is not the way it's always been. If you listen to our other episode, you will see that. This has evolved. And so we're at a point now where we're potentially at another evolution of what it is to be policing. And hopefully it's one that doesn't revolve around them running around with AR-15s and yeah. tanks. Yeah, this, the whole abolish to fund the police, it's not that there shouldn't be people protecting and serving. There shouldn't be police officers. There should be. I mean, we're, we group up in communities and in cities. There's going to be crime. There's going to be wild shit that happens. And we need people to protect us. But the key word in that is protect us. And if you're not going to, then move out of the way and let's open the door for other spaces that will protect us. Mm-hmm. And all of the, the billions and billions of dollars that go into even like the the militarization of the police, that money can get funneled into other avenues that wouldn't require the police to need that kind of shit. Yeah, when we talk about these well-to-do neighborhoods, they have a lot of resources to do things yeah. and, and enrich their communities and in poor neighborhoods that's not there. And it's also not there kind of on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll have, we're definitely going to have some episodes on this. And which we're going to look at how, you know, housing and different aspects, education were created to make sure that our neighborhoods were poor and had crime in yeah. the way that they do. Yeah. And there was uh, some research that came out, and I think I talked about it in the other episode, where there's actually a correlation between the number of nonprofits that deal with youth education, uh, medical, environmental, arts, substance abuse especially, that the more programs are against those things, the lower the crime rate falls. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one part of the study in particular that I found that 
for every uh, for every nonprofit per one hundred thousand people, or every ten nonprofits per hundred thousand people, something like that, there was a twelve percent decrease in murder, ten percent decrease in violent pr- crime, and a seven percent decrease in property time crime through the nineties and early two thousands. Very interesting. Um, well, I'm sure we'll have a few more. Um, episodes around police that I'll definitely keep letting you take the lead on because I just don't want to. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think that's it, yeah? Yeah, that's it. Um, cool. So make sure you guys like, subscribe, and share the Black Codes podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, people who need to know more about these things. You know, we want to teach you about American history and why our country is the way it is in regards to how it influences black lives here and you know how intertwined we truly are with all of American history because black history is not it's not the um, milk that goes on the side of your <laughs> plate at breakfast it's mm-hmm. not the side of fruit that you have with your lunch this is not the side salad that you probably don't eat when yeah. you go out to dinner this is the croutons that are on the salad. This is the cheese on the pizza. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of this history is intertwined and cannot be separated. So make sure you like, subscribe, and share, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.